Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the July 2015 podcast. This month is all about camera. And uh, last month, we went into lighting and all the different moods and tones that you can create and different lighting styles. This one is a lot of camera questions, and I wanted to kind of uh, help and address all of these. First question, on the C100, I was told by Cinema EOS support line that shooting PF24 mode would be the best when having XLRs going into the camera as there were issues when shooting with 24p mode. I now see that the PSF files are a pain and all 1080p files in any NLE shot is PF24 mode and are read as 1080i and 2997. I have to take all of my footage as a workaround and use the 3-2 pull down removal option under interpret footage and it automatically turns the footage to 2398 at 1080p. This is quite annoying and don't quite understand why this happens. Help or should I just shoot 24p from now on and ignore PF24 mode altogether? This is very interesting because on Active Valor, when we shot this feature film, the Canon 5D Mark II could only do 2997. So with that, you had the 3-2 pull-down was the only way we could go about this process. It's a pain, and we had to twixter a lot of it. We use plugins like you're using to interpret the footage, all this kind of stuff. You know, I kind of embraced it because it was our only option, and I actually thought it looked even more cinematic because of it. So the 3-2 pull-down never really bothered me. But it is a extra steps. I, with the C100, I don't try to shoot those higher bit rates to gain what you're trying to get access to. I just shoot it at 2398, and that's all I shoot. I've just found that there's very slight difference between the bit rate and compression, so why not just save that extra step and all the time and in interpreting the footage and just shoot at 2398? 
night and you are good to go. But looking back at Act of Valor and everyone saying how cinematic it looked and they could not tell which was 35 millimeter or 5D footage, I'm not sure if the 3-2 pull down had a lot to do with that experience. Again, it's a cocktail. I'm doing 3-2 pull down. We're doing Cinefilm's uh, texture and denoising process and mixing 5D with 35 millimeter film. So there was a whole cocktail that was going on there. And I don't know how much of the Twixter interpreting the footage 3-2 pull down helped or hurt us. We did some side-by-side tests and found that sometimes the Twixter thing would work the best. Sometimes something through Adobe would interpret the footage the best. It was, it all depended on what the camera was doing, how fast it was panning, what the action was. It's kind of a testing ground on what works the very best. Next question. Can you talk about the obvious difference visually when shooting DSLR between regular still camera primes and master prime lenses? Basically, when we're going to shoot a low-budget project on a 7D or a 5D, should we just use the lenses we have, like a 18 to 135 and a 50 millimeter prime, or opt to rent higher-end prime lenses? Thanks. I get asked this question a lot, and I have shot with both style lenses on commercials and features infused all different types of glass. And I have to say that the difference between a true cinema lens, like a Panavision Primo or a Cook S4 or a Leica Sumalux or a Leica Sumacron or an Agenue Zoom or a Cook Zoom. The difference between that and your Canon L series 16 to 35 or 70 to 200 is basically a Yugo versus a Ferrari. And it's all not just in the coating, not just in how the lens flares. It's how it sees detail. And that's the thing that I have found is the most crucial. When I shot Active Valor, I shot it on a Canon 5D Mark II, and I shot with L-series glass for a little bit. And then once I finally figured it all out, I transitioned to Panavision Primo Primes. And we sprinkled in some Zeiss ZF as well. And then eventually Leica, once I had the Leica Rs adapted to Canon mounts. But it took a while for me to figure this format out, to figure the 5D out and understand its strengths, its weaknesses. I mean, I literally just jumped off a cliff on this movie. I mean, one day we were prepping this movie and the next day I was down taken on a yacht with Navy SEALs hitting it from the air and the sea. And I'm running around with a 5D trying to capture this action on six or seven different cameras. It was a mixed bag visually for the first two or three days until I got my groundings and and truly started to understand what is going to be the best for this DSLR format. And the best is trying to use cinema glass. You're going to get much more detail out of your compressed color space. And that's what it all comes down to because you have a, a massive compression. I mean, it's like 25 times compressed 
text going onto that small CF card. So if you're using a piece of glass that works absolutely beautiful at 16 or 32-bit color on a full-frame image that's a massive for a still frame, you're using the size of the sensor and the pixel count to be able to make the glass look better. It's just the same scenario as if you use a 35 millimeter spherical lens versus a 65 millimeter spherical lens, like for 65, 70 millimeter. The 65 to 70 millimeter lens is absolute crap. The 35 millimeter lens is unbelievable. And the reason being is the quality does not have to be as good when shooting on 65 millimeter because you're using the definition and detail of that film stock to make the lens better. It's the same scenario with a DSLR. This is set up as a still camera that they embedded a video function on. Their still glass is all based on a massive size of a sensor to help with its detail, its color, its definition, all of these things. By using a standard still lens onto a still camera that has a video function, you're going to deliver video that lacks depth, lacks dimension and lacks detail, sharpness, softer contrast because of the piece of glass. What I've done is tried to counteract that. And I know we're all on budgets and what we can afford and what we can't. I would opt for you to rent and go and find a good set of lenses that have been modified. A CP2 is not cinema glass. Okay, a Zeiss CP2 is not cinema glass. A Zeiss CP2 is the same glass that's in the ZE and the ZF still glass at $600 a lens. They have just put it into a big cinema wrapper that has focus throw that is cinematic. So you're not pulling from five feet to infinity in a quarter of an inch. That's all that lens is different. And it has, obviously, gears on the side of it for your iris and for your focus. That is it. The cinema lenses from Canon are the exact same thing. They are the still lenses, same glass, put around a cinema wrapper. That's why they're $4,000 a lens. Let's take what I'm shooting on into the Badlands. I'm using the Leica Summicrons. Now, those lenses are about seventeen dollars to $20,000 a piece. This is a big difference, and it's not just because it's Leica, and it's not because it's cinema, and the movie business is not jacking it up just because of that. It is because the quality, the definition, and the amazing detail that you're going to get out of these lenses follows the price point. My advice to you, if you're going to shoot in this compressed format, try to get the best lens quality that you absolutely can on that DSLR and your imagery will elevate exponentially. Next question. As a camera operator who often works as a one-man band with the desire to break into feature work and shooting, is there a affordable and versatile camera package that you would recommend? I'm coming from the 5D Mark II and the FS100, and I'm feeling the pressure to bump up to 4K to stay competitive. What are your thoughts? 
Well, if you're in the Canon and kind of Sony range, in that range, I would obviously err on the Canon side. I think Canon's color space is far superior to anything that Sony is cooking up. I do have to say that the FS7 is by far the best looking camera that they've ever put out. So that one is starting to have a little traction with me, but Sony's color space in general, I've never been a big supporter of it. If you're coming from the 5D Mark II world, I would say the natural progression for you would be either a C100 Mark II or the new C300 Mark II that is going to be coming out that will have 4K capability. This is where we're headed. I am working with the Red Dragon on Into the Badlands, and I have to say that Shooting at 5K and we're at 7 to 1 compression on this, your file size is smaller than a 1080 uh, ProRes file out of an area Alexa, but you're getting 5K depth and dimension and you can zoom in 40 to 50% without any degradation and it just gives you the ability to really do stuff like stabilizing your shots if it's a little too jerky reframing and zooming in like as a one man band you know you were you were picking up shots and and you know you, you just didn't have the time to get the close up well with 4K you can get that close up this is very essential and future proofing your investment. If you're going to spend the money, I would spend it on a camera that has 4K capabilities right now because it gives you so much more range and so much more adjustability, especially as a one-man band. It's just you, and there's going to be those times where it's a sacrifice and you have to compromise. And with that compromise, 4K gives you the ability to readjust, to reframe, to stabilize, to do all these things that you would not have if you were on a 1080 file. I would feel the pressure and I would go to 4K and find that right 4K for the imagery that you create. If that happens to be and more in the Sony color space, then I would say the FS7 would be perfect because that does 4K. If it's more in the Canon workflow and color space, then I would go for this new uh, Canon 300 uh, Mark II. So that's, that's my thoughts on that. Can you give a few surefire tips about nailing skin tone exposure when shooting log? Either C-log, S-log, log C. Well, the first point that's crucial in nailing these values is you can obviously do it on a waveform. This is what most people have access to. I have really embraced the false color spectrum. And the false color spectrum is something that you can get on. Atomos has false color on some of their recorders. Small HD has false color. The Flanders, Scientific, those monitors that I use, the 9-inch crystal, the OLED displays, all have false color. And false color is basically an IRE value that is over on the left-hand side. And it's zero from 100. And 100 is obviously clipped and zero is black and you can change those levels for what you want. So if you say you want your blacks writing at five IRE, then you can turn your black level to be at five. If you want your skin tones to read the 
50 to 60 range of IRE, then you can set that gray point exactly where you want it. So when you're lighting a person and their skin all of a sudden becomes gray, you know it's exactly at 50 to 60 IRE. And I always take my highlights at 100 and I bring them down to around 96 because I know that is my little safety gap. And this is how I read false color. Now, most monitors, you cannot do that, okay? This is why the Flanders is $5,000. And you can get that new nine inch for like 2,400. The nine inch Flanders is going to be a much better investment than a small HD Pro DP7. It kills it, destroys it. That's an investment for you. And once you have this false color in your hands, you have the power of how I expose. It will literally change your footage overnight. And I cannot express this more. You being able to adjust those false color points is so essential. I do night scenes. Obviously, we're gonna not going to be doing night scenes where they're lit with moonlight at 60, 50 to 60 or 60 to 70 IRE. That's going to be more like 20, 25 IRE because that's dimly lit. It's night. It's got that mood. So I just scroll my gray level down to the 20 to 25 range and sure enough, when it hits, bam, I'm on the right exposure. This is how I expose and this is the best way to get that exposure with your IREs on any of these log formats. Obviously, you want to be using a Rec. 709 color space on your monitor. You don't want to be looking at a flat file ever because a flat file, you cannot gauge IRE value. Anyone that says you can is literally on crack. You need a file that is at least clamped down slightly so you can see your lighting and you can see your contrast. A flat file is very difficult to expose. You tend to underexpose your flat file because you are desperately in all of your mind because it is what you do as a cinematographer is you want blacks, you want contrast, you want mood. So if you're looking at a log file, you're going to be underexposing everything because you're going to be wanting to try and get those blacks. My advice to you is get them a really good monitor. A lighting monitor is everything. If you can't afford it, then you can use zebra in your viewfinder and you can take those zebras and you can change their values. When the face goes to 50 to 60 IRE, then it will zebra. So you know you're at the good exposure. That's a very inexpensive DIY kind of scenario that you can get with almost every video camera has a zebra function that you can change the IRE value. That is one way to go about it. You can see it in the viewfinder. There's some monitors that will zebra and you can vary the range. Most of them are camera based, but the false color is really where I'm at and how I expose. And it's pretty tried and true. And most of what you're going to be ingesting on the inner circle is based on false color exposures. I'm going to be doing several false color posts, articles in the near future. And and uh, this will help with that whole learning process. And again, so we can create this incredible shorthand where when I'm talking about 20 to 25 IRE at Moonlight, you're like, ah, I know exactly what that looks like. Next question. Would you rather overexpose or under your expose your image and why? That all depends on the camera 
and what you're shooting. Because obviously, if you're shooting like what we talked about, moonlight and a moonlit scenario or a dark street and you want it to be moody and dark or a backlit contrasty interior where it's like one shaft coming through a window and it's just the ambient smoke being lit or the bounce that's coming off the floor that's filling in the face. This is the time to kind of underexpose and it's to really underexpose the face and and create that type of mood and tone. When you're outside and it's sunny day and you're looking at faces and everything, you want to expose them. I tend to overexpose my skin tones a little bit. Let's say what Canon says that you should expose your skin tones or let's say medium gray. They say that you should expose medium gray on the Cinema EOS Canon Log platform at 32 IRE. Well, you're going to be underexposing the crap out of all your footage. I'm more at a 50 to 55 point and skin tone at 60 to 65 on the Canon. I'll back it down a little bit depending on how much backlight and detail I'm trying to hold in the background, but I find that if you are working with a Canon Cinema EOS platform during the day, you have to do a lot of filling and a lot of lighting and a lot of netting stuff down so you can get an incredible image. That's what I did on Fathers and Daughters. On Into the Badlands with the Dragon sensor, I'm not lighting much at all. I'm using fill, little fill cards here and there just to bring up a reflection in their eye, but I'm looking at 15 and a half stops of latitude and an extreme, extreme contrast situations in this camera is eating it for breakfast. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it handles highlights like I've never seen any camera. I mean, it's back to the days of me exposing film and the way that film rolls off at eight stops overexposed, this camera rolls off just as beautifully. I've just found that lighting with this camera day exterior wise, it's all about negative fill and taking light away and adding that specific bounce card that's absolutely essential to bring up the reflection in the eye to get that emotion. On the Canon, you have to do a lot more lighting because it doesn't have the latitude. Those three and a half stops that it's lacking in its latitude is basically the Achilles heel of that camera. I have done a very good job of really understanding its limitations and how to embrace it and how to light for it. But the Canon sensor is a very counterintuitive sensor because if you walk into a room and you look at the light, I will start lighting to eye. You can't do that with a Canon because if you start lighting to eye, you're going to miss so many subtle nuances that that camera will pick up. So with the Canon, you have to set your camera down, not even if it's the right lens or somewhere near the right placement, just plop that thing down, turn it on and start looking at the image because you start to find that you don't have to do as much or my God, it looks unbelievable. I just have to do this or, oh, look at that beautiful cyan wash that's coming through there. Let me change the color temp just a little bit. Oh, great. I'm taking advantage of that. Look at those practicals. They're just glowing so warm. I'm going to light them with a warmer feel then because I see all that cool stuff in the background. This is 
the way you light with a cannon. With a dragon, you light to eye. I can walk into a room and immediately start lighting it. And then I can set the camera down right before we're about ready to roll. I'll finesse my exposure, maybe change the color temp a little, and bam, we're ready to go. But not with a cannon. A cannon, you have to plant that thing in the room and start lighting to it. Through this whole digital new age and all the different sensors and they're having their own digital emulsion, I'm really figuring this out. And you're figuring it out with me because as I do so many tests and shoot with so many formats, one day I'm going to tell you that the Canon is amazing. The next day I'm going to tell you what its limitations are and how it's a counterintuitive sensor. Because I'm on the same journey you're on, right? This stuff is being made and processed and spit out to the consumer and we're gobbling it up as fast as we can. And what I'm trying to do is educate you the best that I can to help you in your decision process and to kind of guide you with the best experience level of 20 some years in this business and give you the right guidance. With Canon, like I said, a counterintuitive sensor. Well, that's only counterintuitive to me because I grew up on film. Anyone that's shot film would say it's a counterintuitive sensor. Anyone that hasn't will say that it's perfect. It's exactly what they're used to. So you can see the differing views. But what I do want to say is circling back, it is a counterintuitive sensor to what I have been taught through film. And now seeing the dragon sensor and seeing how that responds, it's exactly, if not better, than how I exposed film. Because when I exposed film, I was very bold. The subtleness and underexposure, all that kind of stuff, and those muddy waters, I was not so much. I was much more of a bold lighter. When I brought stuff through a window, it was eight stops hot. When I bounced stuff off of a table, you put your hand in there, it was gone. When you saw a window, it exploded. The shadows fell off into darkness. Terminator Salvation is a perfect example of that and greatest game and most of my features that I used film. Here's something that I want to, and this is kind of going off the path, but it's good. When I did the IE tour and went to all those 26 cities to share my experience and my lighting expertise with all of you, I stumbled onto an amazing realization. And I want to share that with you because that's what this is all about, right? This is what the inner circle is truly all about, is getting into my headspace. What you saw on the IE tour, and if you get the downloads, you will see it as well. So we use Crazy Beautiful and we use Swing Vote. And we went in on set after showing you all the references and showing you the videos of Crazy Beautiful and Swing Vote. And then we went in to duplicate that lighting. Now, I shot both of those features on film. When we went in to duplicate the lighting, I could not get it anywhere near close to what that film image delivered. And the basic reason was the latitude of the Canon platform. Now, the black magic with one more stop could get the look a little closer because I could bloom the skin 
a little better and it would still hold detail. And I could blow out the background and it still rounded out and bloomed nicely. With the Canon, you just could not get it. On SwingVote, when I lit that night interior where I had the greenish metal halide lights coming through the window and the hot, intense light coming from above on Kelsey Grammer and Stanley Tucci and the way that bloomed Kelsey Grammer's head, it was unduplicatable. You could not get that quality from the Canon Cinema EOS platform. From the Dragon, yes. From the Black Magic, almost. But again, that is latitude. And it's the ability of that camera to see depth and dimension in the highlights. And that's what every digital camera since the beginning of their existence has had to deal with. And only recently with the Dragon and Sensor, with the Area Alexa, with these cameras toting 14, I still think 14 stops of latitude is not enough. I'm just going to go on record saying it because I saw the new Vericam, which is at 14 stops. You notice I don't shoot much Alexa, 14 stops. I'm shooting the Canon because the Canon is the right device to tell that story. It's not necessarily the right device for having the wonderful latitude, but for what I need that tool to do, it's the best storytelling device. On Into the Badlands, the best storytelling device for this mood and tone and vision of Into the Badlands is the dragon. Because the extremes that we're dealing with and the schedule that I have to keep up the pace with, I cannot light to the up degree. The cannon, we would have been destroyed. But with the dragon, I'm able to keep on schedule. I'm able to light very minimalistic and really deliver the look and feel that I want with all the benefits of like, my God, I just love shafting through windows and blowing stuff out and everything. And these are things that you just cannot do at all with the Canon series. Moving on to the next question. Hi, Shane. I need to know what are the best settings for a Canon DSLR, and if you can share with us the picture styles that you use in your productions. Thank you. The best settings for the Canon DSLR are in the B&H series that I did way back when, in 2010, of all the correct settings to turn that thing into a movie-making machine. And you can find those online, and they're also on the blog, the B&H DSLR Cinema series. So you can find that, and that gives you the best way to set up your camera. Now, with the picture styles, each month we share some kind of picture style or lookup table or camera settings or monitor settings. I think this month we're sharing some picture profiles for the 5D. And I think we're sharing Zeiss this month. Not sure, but for June, those picture profiles are available in Shane's store. You can buy a whole packet of them. You can get the Zeiss, the Canon, the Leica, and the Nikon, which takes the Canon color space and alters it via each lens type because each lens has a different quality and a different color. So I'm evening that out so you can shoot with all different lenses. If you have, which a lot of people have, oh yeah, I got a Zeiss 50 mil and I have a Canon 24 and I have a, you know, you got a mixed bag of lenses. These picture profiles brings everything to ground zero and enables you, like I, I built these for Active Valor so I could shoot with multiple types of lenses and they were all would cut very seamlessly. Those picture profiles are in the store for you to grab. 
Next question. Hi, Shane. This is my second question. The first one was the Canon C100. This is more a general one, which everyone can benefit from. Okay, cool. Can you please explain in your mind what the film look is and how to achieve it or get closer to it beyond simply setting the camera to 24 frames with 180 degree shutter or 25 at 150th shutter in my case? I find for myself it's very hit and miss. My shots still look pretty good and my clients are happy, but for me personally, it's very unsatisfying to keep missing the mark. But hey, I guess that's why I'm not a DP yet. The lack of it seems most apparent when shooting daylight, particularly whites or mixed color temperature scenes. Thanks for the keys, Ben Givich, Melbourne, Australia. All right, Ben. Cinematic to me has a lot of different emotions. Cinematic is shallower depth of field. So if you're shooting day exteriors and you're not... Uh, using neutral density on your camera and everything is in focus from two feet to infinity, that's going to be uncinematic. You want to create a three-dimensional quality and that is done by separating your actress or your model or whatever you're shooting from the background. And that's done with depth of field first. Most of my day exteriors, I don't shoot over a two, sometimes a two eight. Wide shots, close-ups, doesn't matter. It's always at a 2 or a 2.8. I never go higher than that. Now, if I'm shooting with a DSLR, then I'll go to a 4.56 split because of the larger sensor size and the depth of field is shallower. But if it's 35 millimeter sensor, I'm at a 2 or a 2.8. Nothing higher. This creates an amazing 3D quality and cinematic look. Then it's with light. Light creates cinematic look using light and shadow. So when you go in on a face and day exterior, let's say you're in shadow, right? You're in the north light side and you have sun or whatever in the background. Well, then you'd want to bring in negative fill. So one side has darkness to the face and the other side has light. And then you want to position that person. So in the background where you have the darkness on one side of their face, maybe there's light in the background to be able to separate that. This is how you start to achieve a cinematic look. Your hit and miss is natural. These are This is the learning process. This is what the inner circle is all about, is educating you in a way of taking my experience and then I'm passing it on to you. And this is a great question because so many people don't understand the power of depth of field and the power of lighting along with it. Those two things will be able to deliver the best cinematic look other than the camera settings that we've already talked about and discussed. How can you take the cinematic look even further? Well, obviously motion is a big cinematic feel. The way the camera moves, push-ins, pull-backs, follow-behind, moving profile. So as much as you can move the camera in a way that helps assist the emotion of the character and really puts the audience in that moment, then that is going to help with your cinematic look. Obviously, the story and what you're shooting and the time frame and everything should have no bearing to whether it's a cinematic look 
look or not, because this is your responsibility as a cinematographer to deliver this look. And if I have to go through the bullet points, it's one, depth of field, two, lighting to create depth and dimension and light and shadow, and three would be movement and how the camera moves and how you can evoke emotion by moving. Here's a perfect example. On Into the Badlands, there's a moment in a lot of the dialogue that we do that one of the characters, we wanted to show his power. So we started the camera a little higher, and as he talked and as he started to continue to fire up his forces and engage them, we slowly dropped that camera to this position that was just amazingly power. He looked like so heroic. And just by moving the camera a foot and a half down from eye level to below eye level delivered that emotional impact. So these are the things and the tools that you can use. Next question. When shooting with DSLRs, is it better to establish the look of your movie in camera or during the post-production? I understand that the H.264 codec is not very rugged, so I try not to push it too much during the color grading, color correcting process. What are your suggestions on this topic? Thanks. When shooting DSLRs, it's like shooting ectochrome, Kodachrome, film stock. And if you know anything about these film stocks, they have a very minimal latitude. Like the, the Canon 5D Mark II has like nine and a half stops of latitude. So those stops of latitude kind of hinder your creative expression, let's say. That camera is all about underexposing. You cannot expose that camera like I expose like the C300, the C500. You have to underexpose that camera. You have to starve that sensor of light and it will absolutely shine. With that, you have to put it in the right ballpark so that you do not have to do much in post because you do not have the latitude to do a lot in post. What I talk about in this latest post on the free blog, the baking in your look, I bake in my look on on everything that I do. But with the DSLRs, you have to get very close because when you start pushing that H.264 Kodak, it just falls apart very quickly. It's your job as a cinematographer to really test that. I shot extensive amount of tests on what that thing could do and what happened when I stretched it. And when I overexposed it compared to underexposing it, and you fall into the ballpark of starve that sensor of light, and you will succeed and be very happy with your footage. Okay, thoughts on the Sony 7S. Thanks. I have just gotten two in to Revolution Cinema Rentals, and I cannot wait to start testing with those cameras. The F5, that's the one I tested for Need for Speed. That was the best Sony camera that I had shot with. I thought it gave me the best skin tones, the best quality, and I shot it at 1080. So the FS7 is that same sensor, just given updates and everything. So if there was any camera I would shoot on Sony, it would be this camera. It just seems the best of what they've cooked up. 
The F-55, it was a bad, bad. The F-65, never been a fan of. Never been a fan of any of the Sony color space. But this Sony seems like it has some legs and it has potential. So I like the camera. I like its abilities. I like everything that it can do. It's high speed, what it's able to deliver in quality and ISO. Yeah, it's a good camera. I, I, I like it. Hi, Shane. I know that you shoot a lot with the Canon 5Ds and seem to like them a lot. I think they produce a great image, but wish you could record internally to ProRes 422 or higher. I currently am a Canon shooter for music videos and corporates and find myself renting more and more. I'd like to buy a good go-to camera. I'm currently looking at the Panasonic GH4, the Sony A7S, and the Canon 5D Mark II. What are your opinions on which would be best in the way of color representation and ability to manipulate in post, low light, and sharpness? I think after reading your blog about the GH4, where you say it has a video look more than filmic look, then the A7S or the 5D Mark II would be better. The Canon 5D Mark II or Mark III out of all those cameras is the GH4 is very slow camera and it does have a very video look. So I would not recommend that if you're looking for, you know, a cinematic look. The Sony a7S, I really haven't figured out that camera. I, sorry, I don't understand its platform or understand anything about it because it's high ISO settings and not hitting any uh, log file till 3200 ISO and having to shoot day exteriors to gain that latitude and having to IRND down. I don't understand that camera and it's not a wise choice. The Canon 5D Mark II or Mark III, if you want to stay in the DSLR vein, would be I guess your next choice, I would say I would go with a C100 or a C100 Mark II, or now that the price is dropped on the C300, the C300 is a better camera than, than the C100. So I would go with that because the price has dropped so radically. If you want to stay in the 1080 vein, if you want to move to 4K, then obviously the 4K platform of Sony FS7, the Canon C300 Mark II that's coming out, those are going to play a little more into the vein of all that. If you want to stay in the DSLR uh, world, I would say at least go to a Mark III or a C100 or a C300, staying under the $5,000 price threshold if that's where you can be. Now, your other option is the Blackmagic Cinema Camera. The Blackmagic Cinema Camera, I feel, is the best out of all of them. Better than the 4K. It's better than the Ursa. I haven't tested the Ursa Mini. A lot of good things people are saying about that. I got to get my hands on that. I have one waiting for me once I get off of Badlands to be able to test. I think the Blackmagic Cinema Camera with its 13 stops of latitude, now it does have a very difficult log file to color grade. It's very very counterintuitive on how to color grade that camera, but it gives you 13 stops of latitude and a, a very large file so you can do a ton of post and have a lot of latitude. And I find that I've written several posts on it, but the Blackmagic Cinema Camera, I think is one of those cameras that's like the best training ground for young cinematographers. Because with the four-third chip sensor, it gives you a little better sense of getting stuff in focus. It also gives you the ability to have the latitude of what like, let's say, Super 16 had, and you can make mistakes and still bring it back. 
That's my advice to you. All right, next question. Hi, Shane. Thanks for everything you do within the inner circle. I have two questions. False color. Actually, I think I understand how it works, but can you explain how you especially use it? I heard in one of your lighting videos that you change the false color settings. Why? In simple terms, what is a 3D LUT? Is it possible to buy LUTs for specific cameras? Thanks a lot for everything you do. Carlo. A couple questions ago, I really addressed the false color and why I change the different settings. Obviously, this does not change the monitor at all, okay? You're not changing the image or the color or the brightness or the contrast. Nothing on the monitor changes. You're just setting your IRE values at a different point. So it's reading that in your false color scale. Adjusting those is what I do, and that's why I change those settings, because each light scenario requires a, a different IRE value. If you're in a dimly lit bar, you're going to be down in the 20s for skin tone. If you're day exterior and being hit with the sun, you're going to be in the 60 to 70s with skin tone. If you're moonlit, you're going to be 15, maybe 20, 25. If you're day interior, window light, you're going to be 55 to 65. So it's like all these is where I kind of position this IRE value. Now, what is a 3D LUT? Your wish is my command. On the Hurl blog, we have a four-part series that is a monster post. These posts should be in the inner circle, but I wanted to give all of our followers, 1.8 million of them, this type of pearls that I've learned with 3D LUTs and how to use them. I've gone into a four-part series that finishes on Wednesday. Wednesday was part one. Last Friday was part two. Monday will be part three, and Wednesday will be part four. And this will break down exactly every single question that I think you will have about this 3D LUT scenario. It is possible to buy the LUTs for specific cameras. I've created Area Alexa. I've created C500, C100, C300, as well as the Red Dragon LUTs for all of these different lighting scenarios, time of day, day interior, night interior, dawn, dusk, gold, late afternoon, neutral, skin tone based, all these different lookup tables for you to be able to sample and to buy. All right, next question. Shane, I would love to hear your tips and techniques on focusing. Rack focus and follow focus techniques. Marking points on follow focus wheel versus on the lens. Cinema lenses versus DSLR lens. Pros and cons. Techniques for operating both camera and rack focus alone. No camera assist. Choosing where to focus as it relates to your storytelling, etc. Thanks, Vance. Whoa. That question would take a whole podcast. Now, Vance... I want to be able to try and answer your question. Let me just take one part of this. Cinema lenses versus DSLR lenses. When you're dealing with rack focus with those, we entered into this anomaly, let's say, or this perfect storm where you have focus pullers that I employed on Active Valor that have been pulling on 35 millimeter film for 20, 30 years. And they were all of a sudden thrown into the fire of pulling focus on a still lens. Now, a still lens its main objective is to make the throw from three feet to infinity 
just the slight rub of your thumb onto the barrel. That's manual or in autofocus mode, that throw wants to be incredibly minimal so it can snap the lens to the exactly where the magic is. So when you push that trigger, you deliver the goods. That's still glass. Cinema glass is all based on the emotion of a scene and how it feels when you pull focus from something that's 14 feet away to somebody that turns in the foreground and you rack to that person. With a cinema lens, that rack will be beautiful. What my team had to get inside their minds is now that rack had to be even slower on a still lens because five feet to 15 feet was literally like the slightest turn on a focus knob. So what we started doing is we started engineering these massive gears that would go around the outside of the lenses. So it would make their circumference even larger. Now, five feet to 15 feet was more like a half of an inch focus rack instead of a 16th of an inch. And on a cinema lens, that throw from three feet to 15 feet is probably three to four inches on your remote follow focus wheel. These are the differences between cinema glass versus DSLR glass and how it feels. You can take a DSLR like we did and we turned it into that cinema glass by re-gearing the outside and setting up our focus pullers that had been in the 35 millimeter vein for so many years to set them up for success. But this is what you have to do to really help in that process. So those are the pros and the cons choosing where to focus and where it relates to the story. Let's just take one rack focus scenario that I can leave you with, because this question requires a lot of time and I don't want to just blow it off. I want to try to give you the best, because rack focus and follow focus techniques, this is something that you really need to talk to a focus puller because it's kind of what I feel and that's exactly what they do as well, but they have techniques that help them with that emotion connection and feel. But let's take a scenario like this. Okay, we have a person and they're in the foreground and they're kind of profiled to us. And then they look to a person that's in the background. On that look is going to then motivate your rack. And depending on how quickly they look or how slowly they look, motivates the speed of that rack focus. Now we could be on a person in the deep background and we can see them and he looks at the person and then maybe the person looks away or then turns to somebody else in the foreground and starts talking with them and that motivates the rack to go back. So much of this focus and this feeling is exactly that. And when I hire veterans like Eric Swanick that is doing Badlands with me as well as Fathers and Daughters, this is a guy that's done 80 some features, some of the biggest features in the business. And he is passionate and he pulls focus with emotion. And it's not just the techniques of getting everything in focus. It is how that character makes you feel and how he moves, he or she moves or what her subtle nuance nuances are and when to go to them or when to move from one eye to the other. These are the things that with experience you will master. This generates a great article 
and I'll ask Eric Swanick, because he's an awesome educator as well, to share his techniques with all of you on how he sets himself up for success in the focus pulling department, because he has this whole etiquette of where he doesn't mark the whole lens, like he only marks it from three feet to 30 feet, so he doesn't have the whole range, and he dials in his remote follow focus to only go that far, even though the lens might go to a foot and a half, because that keeps his hand only going so far on the wheel. It's amazing. I mean, this guy is so experienced, and uh, I'll get him to share that all with you. So Vance, you've generated a amazing article that will be shared within the inner circle because of this question. I think it's it's great. So sorry I couldn't answer all of it in depth, but I think I answered a couple good things for you and it's going to generate hopefully a series of articles with Swanick doing his very best to uh, educate you on the, the emotion of focus pulling. Next question. Dear Shane, it was indeed a revelation to learn what the GoPro can do. Up to then, I thought it was just a good for web posting and the usual surf sport stuff. What was your workflow to be able to get the images good enough for projection on the big screen? Did you use the file from the micro SD cards or did you use an external recorder? Thanks, Ariel. To put it into a nutshell of how that was possible on Need for Speed, the GoPros that we were using was a beta firmware that ended up being better than even the GoPro 4 that's out right now. Now, it was still 2.7K, but I had 13 stops of latitude, and I had a log file that really was very impressive. With that log file, we were able to record at a higher bit rate as well onto the micro SD card. That was the recipe be for success. So that gave me a good log file. It gave me a lighter compression, so it wasn't so compressed and noisy. Obviously, couldn't shoot that camera over 400 ISO. It got noisy very quickly. I was able to adjust all my ISOs and shutter speeds, but I didn't. I didn't have the ability to do that. Every place I put a GoPro, I had to put it there and just walk away and let it run into stuff. And and I couldn't be messing with exposures because we were going in and out of clouds. And a lot of times we'd have to load it onto a car and then they'd be loading it up with rubber cement and putting bombs in it and all that stuff. So you just had to push the cameras, suction cup them on, hit record and walk away for 60 minutes. So adjusting ISOs and, and shutter speeds was never in the ballpark. I just had to embrace whatever the GoPro did at the time, whatever the shutter speed was, whatever the ISO it chose in full auto mode. But I did have that log file as well as a higher bit rate to kind of set me up for success. Then it became the post process where I took every bit of GoPro footage and I threw it through the Cinefilm dark energy box. And what that did, it is stripped all of its compression and all the noise. And then it layered in beautiful texture of grain on top of it. So that was how I kind of infused it into all the different cameras you see on Need for Speed. Hi, Shane. I've had the opportunity to work briefly with the Blackmagic Cinema Camera, and I thought that it performed very well. But I did not have the opportunity to really test it. I hear horror stories about the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera having severe orbing effects, black spots, and moray. For the BM Production Camera 4K, I hear a lot of complaints about fixed pattern noise. Have you experienced any of these issues? Sincerely, Brett. Brett, yes, I've 
have experienced all of those. And when you think about it, you want to go with the camera that they first put out, the Blackmagic Cinema Camera, because that's the one that they've had the most time to R&D, the most firmware upgrades, the most honing in that sensor and that whole camera to its best. If I was to purchase a Blackmagic camera, I would go with the Cinema Camera. The 4K is too slow. It has the fixed pattern noise. It has a lot of moray. It has a lot of issues with it. The Ursa, I just didn't understand the format and the size and everything that was about that camera. I'm very excited for the Blackmagic Ursa Mini. I think that has got a really great market share that could that could work, and I cannot wait to test that camera. I get that uh, when I get back from Badlands. So that's my advice to you. Oh, one more question. Would love thoughts on slow motion with the 1DC, Mike Collins. All right, Mike, the slow motion on the 1DC was somewhat soft. Obviously not doing slow motion at 4K, you're doing slow motion only at 1080, and you're going to the full frame sensor as well. Now, I think they have 60 frames at the 35 millimeter sensor uh, size. That's something that I would definitely, I'm not sure if they've made the firmware upgrade on that. I think they have. If they have, that's what I would shoot at. I would never shoot that camera full frame. I only shoot it at 4K. That's what that camera was designed to do. If you do have to shoot 1080, shoot Super 35 don't shoot full frame. The camera's just way too soft. That's my advice. I think the 60 frames per second looks very good. I did a lot of testing on that. Eli is our model running all around. I thought it looked really nice and it looked very natural. It's just that you want to definitely shoot with the 35 millimeter sensor size and not the full frame. It just looks very, very soft. And uh, that camera was just not designed to shoot those different formats. It was a 4K camera right off the bat. If you shoot that camera 4K, it delivers beautiful imagery. If you shoot it anything other than that, then it's not so good. It just doesn't deliver. Well, that concludes our July 2015 podcast, and this has been a monster as well. And I cannot thank you all enough for being a part and submitting all your incredible questions. This was a very, very camera-oriented one. I hadn't done one of these in a long time, and I had a wonderful time. Take care, and thanks again. Bye. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this 
dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.